Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. Thanks so much for joining us and for sharing your time with us. We know how precious that is and we totally appreciate the fact that you follow us, that you listen to us, that you get some knowledge and some enlightenment from what some of the guests are saying and that you pass it on because that's the point of the show, to share the wisdom and what applies to you you know, pick up, embrace, and utilize what doesn't move on because it's every everything is not for everybody. We want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. We totally appreciate he and his wife. You can find them at nativestorytellers.com. And if you've never experienced the Native Storytellers, it's an adventure that you should try. It's a way of preserving history, cosmology, wisdom, and, and generations of, of insight and and discovery through stories and it's been passed generation to generation to generation and it probably is far more accurate than what our textbooks today show so please check it out it's nativestorytellers.com you won't be disappointed tonight i really am so excited tonight we welcome um lynn picknett and clive prince who share their new book with all of us when god had a wife it's an amazing book it fills a lot of blank spaces for those of us who are looking for more answers and filling in the blanks to the beginning of the major religions before they became mainstream. And, and a lot of the history, before the history books even had information to give us, it's the kind of book you have to read three or four times because every time you read it, you find something new. And though I've only read it once, I have a promise to myself to go back and start charting and taking even better notes than I took the first time. They address how Judaism originally had more than one much-loved goddess and how they very nearly lost her, but, but not quite, and how she resurfaced in early Christianity in a rather unlikely form and is still with us today gratefully. Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince have worked together on nonfiction books about religious and historical mysteries for over 25 years. 
Their most influential book so far is The Templar Revolution that they wrote in 97 and then revised in 2007, which was a major inspiration for the Da Vinci Code, and they were even given cameos in the music. So really famous people here. A major theme of their own work has always been the suppression but persistence of the sacred feminine and how they present their most explosive evidence for the lost goddess in both Judaism and Christianity in their latest book, When God Had a Wife, The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine in the Judeo-Christian Tradition. You can find them at www.picnetprince.com. That's P-I-C-K-N-E-T-T-P-R-I-N-C-E.com. Check out all of their books because these, these two individuals do research that is so profound it's unbelievable i stopped fact checking them because you know the 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 information they have gathered is so well established and and you know it's it's right there you can see the proof for it so they they don't take you on flights of fancy they give you hard evidence and you either swallow it or not depending on where you are and you can always go back and reread it to get extra tidbits and stuff like that when you move into different levels of your own evolution. So, Lynn and Clive, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I so appreciate your your work and your efforts, and you you blow me away with especially this latest book. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Barbara. It's yeah. amazing being yeah. on the show. Thank you for uh, for inviting us and. Um... Well, it sounds like we've got a lot to live up to. It does, actually. Well, I'm I'm not at all, you know, I, I'm familiar with someone with a photographic memory, and I know what happens when you keep fact-checking them. You just waste your time. But but I did, you know. It, it was kind of like, let me just see about that. And and it was it was fascinating to, I think, for me, the most exciting part of it is, we we all know the the basic history that the Bible covers roughly, but you go before the Bible, and and then as you move forward, the what what fascinated me the most was um, I I know people whom I love dearly who swear that that this was inspired writing and that once God was finished he was never going to write again, and. And you go back and you say, well, they had to revise it here and they had to do a little technical work on it there. And so, in essence, the Bible is a work in process. It's not finished yet. Yeah, uh, yeah but exactly. Um, and, um, you know, we always get this impression that the, 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 the books in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, which, you know, we tell that whole story from from the creation you know, right through to um, you know just before um, the the beginning of the, the Christian era. You know, kind of Old Testament is sort of setting the scene for Jesus in the in the Christian Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, it obviously stands alone. But you get that feeling that um, as it tells that story, you know, say from Moses onwards, that you're kind of reading it as it happened. But of course, like any history book, it was put together at a particular point in time. Um, although it may have drawn on sources that go back a long way, at some, at, at some point, uh, somebody or rather a group of people sat down and said, you know, let's put all this together into the kind of, the, the fixed canon of books. And this happened surprisingly late. Um, this happened all oh, around about sort of 
450 BC. Um, so, uh, and at that point, they take the stories, the old stories, and they change them, revise them, rewrite them in the light of where they are in history at that point in time. So they essentially rewrite the history. Some things that happened in the past aren't important to them anymore. Um, other things, they have to put a different spin on it. So yeah, the, the story in the, you know, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, really does need to be looked at as any work of history, historical writing. Yeah, sort of biblical Stalinists, you know, <laughs> rewriting history to, su to suit the current regime. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's take it all the way back to the very beginning, and and what I and and this is a part of of history that that most people don't go to. But the Creator's name was not God or Yahweh; it was El. In in the very beginning, in in Genesis, the you know, obviously the first book of the, the Hebrew Bible, um, God is El. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point in the story where he um, changes his name. Um, and the point of when that happens is when Moses has his experience with the burning bush. Um, and this is the point where God becomes Yahweh. And thereafter, throughout the Bible, uh, throughout the books of the Hebrew Bible, he's referred to almost exclusively as Yahweh, occasionally as El. Um, but it's a very sudden change, and it, it, other things happen as well. You know, the, the, the names, uh, people's own um, personal names, which obviously has the God part in them. Um, before that point, there were there were no um, uh, that the, there were none with with Yahweh as part of their name. They're all L. Afterwards, there's lots of Yahweh names. So something actually really did happen historically at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there was a change in God's name. But the evidence is it wasn't so much that God changed its name, it's that it was actually a different God. Yeah, so there's more than one God at the beginning. Mm. Well, yeah, there were lots of them, and they all weren't men. Well, yes, and that is, as we know, Barbara, the important point. <laughs> Um, yes, um, I mean it's you know there's what we what we think is rather sweet. I mean there's this archaeological evidence. <coughs> sorry, in the last few years, um, uh, turning up figurines and inscriptions on bits of pottery to Yahweh and his Asherah, or El and Elat. Um, you know, basically um, God and his female consort. Um, you know, and it was. An incredibly common, much loved um, part of the religion, and it was part of the official religion as well for many, many years. So yes, so we're talking about long, long ago, and it was not this rigid patriarchal religion as we might think of today. That I mean, the, the, the uh, really crucial point is earlier, when I referred to that um, putting together of the official history. So about 450 BC. Um, up until that point, and this is an amazing um, fact, but it is a fact that is actually accepted by uh, you know, all academics and all scholars of the period, um, and you can actually reconstruct it from the Bible itself. But up until that point, the um, Israelites, the Hebrews, um, 
were not monotheists, despite what we've always been told, you know, in school, in Sunday school, in church, in the synagogue, you know, we think of it as the Bible is the story of a monotheistic religion, but actually it wasn't. And the strange thing is that once you know that and you read the Hebrew Bible, the books of the Hebrew Bible don't even pretend otherwise. Mm. It does talk about other gods. It's just that they had decided to follow and worship one of those gods, but they acknowledged the existence of others, many others. Well, when you get right down to it, the thought of, especially in in a society where women had had very much um, the same the same power, so to speak. I mean, it, it, they went through a period of time where, and especially in Egypt, um, where women you know, we're equals and then suddenly not so, but, but when you look at the aspect of a God, um, as it is portrayed so often in, in, in so many places, all powerful thundering, you know, um, you know, dictatorial almost. Mm -hmm. And, and yet, frankly, as a woman, I would pray to mother earth. Or Mother Nature, you know, I I don't want somebody with lightning bolts talking for me. I want somebody that that knows what it's like to go through birth. So yeah, exactly, exactly. You you want you want another another woman, but yeah. a woman plus, so a woman with extra power of godhood. Mm-hmm. And and I love the way you you said that women, you know, the god goddesses were. And, and it's not a, the only term I can come up with is manipulate, but they were they were so subtle in getting their way that the male god didn't know that they were actually getting yes. their way. <laughs> Which says a lot about the male god, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that you know that leapt out for us doing this research is this, that, that this whole uh, wisdom tradition, female wisdom tradition. Um, which was among the ancient Israelites going back to a wisdom goddess, uh, going back to Asherah, because in the uh, she, Asherah was a, um, a goddess that was also worshipped by the Canaanites as well. And we actually know quite a bit more about how the Canaanites saw her, and we often have to assume that's how the Israelites saw her as well. But certainly in the um, Canaanite legends, um, you know, she does have that particular form of like you said, kind of manipulative. It is the word, but it's not looked at in a, a negative way. That mm-hmm. whereas the god can just decree something, mm-hmm. uh, make a decision, um, the goddess has to kind of work around him and, and work through subtlety um, and um, you know suggestion um, and you know, manipulation. And this seems to have given rise to a whole tradition that is actually again there in the Hebrew Bible of um, wise women. There are wise women that pop up now and again Mm. in the Bible story, Um, normally in the context that they are, um, they get a man, a male ruler, even including King David himself, to change his mind. Um, This seems to be their function. Um, Now, they pop up and they just appear like stories that are thrown in but when you begin to actually piece all these different women together who act in the same way who have the same title there was this title um oh so it's just gone straight out of my head um and mine. A, a mother in israel that's oh. it sorry yeah they had this title a mother in israel which is what's applied to them and 
for centuries people have just thought oh it's just a phrase it's just something nice to say about them but it's actually very clear um when you put it all together that this was actually a title that was a female counselor to the male rulers even in matters of warfare you know it's actually and it's a strong tradition really up until the time of king david and then it suddenly disappears mm. but for all that time there was this wisdom tradition going back to a wisdom goddess and um, what i what i particularly what i particularly like i mean we don't know how old these women mothers in israel were they might have been any age every age but i do rather like the implication that there was a role for older women <laughs> oh yeah but you know what it it makes perfect sense in society as a whole for there to be a male female a positive negative i mean a, a balance yeah and and you know when you take when you take the the softness and when you take the logic and the reason and the wisdom of the woman away you you have some guy going out there you know hacking away and and gaining power and then not knowing what to do with it and it, I mean, look at the Oracle of Delphi. They, as as I understand it, they were all women. So yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, we ought to acknowledge, on the other hand, because it's something we talk quite a lot about in the book, is that you could have war goddesses too, who yeah. were like pretty, uh-huh. pretty scary. And, there, and there, again, there was another one that was part of the um, worship of the Israelites. Um, a very fiery goddess a very scary yeah very scary goddess Anat Um, you you know you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of her on a dark night (laughs) (laughs) well what what I found also interesting was as you went through time um, when there when countries were taken over quite often you know the elite were taken and put someplace else and yet the common folk were were left where they were so that so that they didn't have to suddenly change their religion to stay alive and maintain their their property they just kept going with their goddesses and their gods and the elite were you know going going between one belief system and another depending upon who had conquered their property uh, yeah and it, it's another important bit of context really to look at to, when we read the hebrew bible is um is to understand that the story it's telling is about the religion of the elite, of the rulers, of the kings, of the the priesthood at the temple, you know, in Jerusalem, of you know, in the capital city. So it's the story is really told from their perspective, and they they weren't really that concerned about what the you know the peasants out in the fields, um, you know, what they believed, what they worshipped. And uh, but because of because it is the story of the elite, it does give us a, a false impression of certain parts of the history. For example, um, after Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians, we know about the, um, the you know the, the, the well the the Judahites, the Jews um, from Jerusalem being sent into the captivity in Babylon into exile, and the impression you get is that. That's the whole lot. You know, the whole population was cleared out and sent there. But no, it, it's it's the elite. They reckon, you know, historians who've worked on this reckon about 25% of the population was sent into exile. 75% stayed where they were and carried on working the land and believing what they'd always believed. And it's when those, the elite came back from exile 
their beliefs had changed while they were away. Mm. That's actually the point. It's, it's actually slightly afterwards, a few generations on, but that's the point where they do this wholesale rewriting of the religion, the codifying of the religion, which entails them rewriting the history to make it to conform to mm. their ideas. It's a sort of shameless retrospective, really. Hmm. Well, you know, they do say that history belongs to the victor, and mm. and over time, I mean, there was so much backing and forthing, and and I think what what most people don't understand too is that the the story of of the creation of all of uh, of Judaism and Christianity was a combination of so many different societies, Egypt included, and Egypt was very important in it all. Um, absolutely, it ties a lot back to Egypt. Um, you know, one of the most controversial areas uh, amongst scholars is the exact relationship between the Israelite religion and the Egyptian religion. Um, as we piece it together in the book, we think there was a, a, a great influence of um, the Egyptian religion on um, uh, the religion of Moses. Um, you know, the evidence is that Moses himself was an Egyptian. Mm -hmm. the, the story of him you know, being a Hebrew who was set adrift and then brought up in the, the mm. among the royal family of Egypt um, was just a made-up story um, to hide the fact, well, to ex to explain the fact that although he was the leader of this people, he has an Egyptian name. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Moses was, you know, it's like Tutmos, um, which means, um, you know, beloved of the god Thoth. You know, Mose or Moses um, was a suffix. You stuck it at the, at the end of a, of a name to mean beloved of a certain god. Yes. And in fact, there's obviously a bit missing with his name. He, you know, we, we'd love to know, wouldn't we, who, uh, which god he was beloved of, but we don't get that. And also, his sister, Miriam, the, the, the first um, uh, described as a prophetess, the first the first prophetess or prophet mentioned in the story, Moses' sister, her name comes from an Egyptian word as well. So the evidence is that the the, the leadership of that group, um, and certainly the priesthood, because they all the, the other others in the priesthood had Egyptian names. It's recognised now um, that they that they were Egyptian. Um, and they were the ones that you know led people into the promised land and then you know became the israelites but there was a a strong egyptian influence well so so this story you know those who wrote this story i mean as far as the bible goes um it, you know it does it does it's very confusing because you you think of one thing and then then you, the facts don't don't hold out to to support it and so you're left with well what really did happen and so as as time goes on do they go back and revise when did they stop revising it because i know they kept putting different parts of it in for for generations oh i mean certain parts of it were changed um you know well into kind of the the, the christian period I mean, for you know, there was continual editing of it. Um, and just to pick, you know, one example, uh, a very telling example, is that the earliest actual manuscripts of certain books of the Bible um, are um, actually found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, they have certain books um, that we're familiar with, and most of them are exactly the same as what as, as, as they've always been in both Christian and Jewish tradition, except that certain words have changed. And, for example, one word that is used of the um, group of celestial beings around God um, in the, the, the most recent interpretation is, is translated as angels. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the word used is gods. You know, so um, even since the Dead Sea Scrolls were written, which were sort of late BC, early AD, um, the, the word someone's gone through and basically changed the word gods to angels. Wow. Yeah. So, so it, it's amazing how how things have trans, transcended through time just with different names. And, and it just, it boggles the mind. Like we had spoken of earlier, they, they keep changing names to fit the, the time and, and the, and the perception of those within that reality and what would be applicable for them and what would be acceptable to them. So, so actually it's not as cut and dried as, as, rabbis and priests and ministers are led to teach us. I mean, it, it's frankly, I think it's a more realistic and exciting story when you go back and you get all the facts. Well, this is where we're coming from, actually, Barbara, as you, as you know, in this book, we're, we're trying to build a bridge between, if you like, the academics providing the facts and the mind-body-spirit community, because often there is this great distrust on either side. Um, and really here, people know instinctively that there must have been a goddess. You know, there must have been a goddess. Way back. And, uh, but you can find out her name, where she was worshipped, when she was worshipped, by looking at the hard facts. So, yes, and, and, and of course, one of the ways that, as you point out, one of the manifestations of scrambling the facts is actually, sadly, what we're taught in synagogues and churches and at Sunday school, um, you know, because obviously they have to pare it down and teach it very simplistically. But, but basically, in doing that, they're losing a lot of the facts. Um, and if, if you set yourself the task of being a sort of historical detective, which is kind of what we do, mm-hmm. and then you go back and you just sort of pull pull back the various onion skins that have, that have accrued, you know, the layers of onion that have accrued over the years of this story. Get back at the tiny little bit in the middle that's worth having. And basically, what you're doing is being very brave and you're taking on, you know, if you like, the whole of your religion because you're saying, well, I'm, you know, what the story you tell me is great, but I want to know the truth. I want to go back to the facts. And we... We feel we, we're helping people do that. We're we're providing you know notes and references so that you can, as, as you have, double check stuff for yourself. <laughs> and it's just it's just a really exciting journey because that's exactly what it is. Well, yeah, and it gives, frankly, it gives one a better foundation to stretch from because, especially today, people are stretching beyond what the facts are. Are going into a a, a more um, a more deeper spiritual understanding of things. And, and if you, if you have the foundation that you can move forward from, 
it gives you a better grasp of, of where you are going spiritually. Uh, frankly, I think your book clears up so many questions people have. And, and it, it, it just, I mean, for instance, that in many of the temples and it, it, there, there was not only the, um, they raised stones to, to um, designate Yahweh or El, but there was also a tree planted that was, that was, its partner that that was a commemoration to Asherah. I mean, very early on, they understood there had to be a balance between the feminine and the masculine. And absolutely. we've lost absolutely. But the, the, you know, for for centuries, millennia, really, um, people have read the 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 references to uh, Asherim, um, plural Asherahs, um, and thought that they were just trees. You know that that's all they were. Um, that they didn't have. You know, didn't know exactly what they um, what they stood for. But nevertheless, there's some kind of tree thing going on here. But you know, who cares? Um, <laughs> but actually, now now you, you, one one realizes that the Asherim were actually, as you say, trees planted next to the representation of El or, or Yahweh. Um, that actually they they referenced the goddess Asherah. So you have you know the stone um, for Yahweh and the tree for Asherah. And they, you know, and there it is in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, over and over and over again, telling you that they were worshipped together. And even more remarkably, and again, it's, it, it's in the Hebrew Bible, is that um, Asherah was worshipped alongside Yahweh in the Temple of Jerusalem, in Solomon's Temple. Um, it, it's interesting that quite often during this rewriting of the story um, that happened when they kind of made the religion monotheistic um, that the facts they give in the narrative are actually quite at odds with the message they say they're, that they're trying to give so for example um, you know when they when you go to when you go through the Bible and it tells the story of what happened in Solomon's temple, um, the impression they give is that that was dedicated solely to the worship of Yahweh, but occasionally you had a kind of heretical or um, you know, um, king would be kind of corrupted into the worship of this Asherah figure and um, occasionally put up a... Um, uh, an image to her, a tree or something, actually within the temple, and then a prophet would come along, and, and the, 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 that image would be cleared out. So <laughs> the impression they're trying to give is that having the Asherah symbol in the temple was something that happened now and again when things went wrong. But you actually go through and count up the, the years and the reigns of the kings they're telling you about. And it tells you it's the other way round that most of the time the Asherah was worshipped in the temple alongside Yahweh and very occasionally um, well it, it, we actually had up years it's about sort of 70% of the time Asherah was present in the temple and the other 30% was when a, um, a, a, a king under the influence of an extreme prophet or another would have the thing removed but then his successor as king would just put it back again. So actually the normal thing is to have Asherah in the temple, in Solomon's temple. The unusual state of affairs is not to have it there. And that's, you know, that's from the information provided in the, in the books of the Hebrew Bible themselves. Well, would that 
go back to where um, Akhenaten decided to to be, you know, create a singular god, and then Tut went back and and brought all of the gods and goddesses back after his father was killed or died. Well, it, it's interesting. It seems to be a, a feature of monotheism, accepting that Akhenaten you know, was a monotheist. The, the first monotheist, the first to elevate one god, is as soon as you get into that position, you start wanting to get rid of all the other cults. And mm-hmm. it happened you know, when when they codified Judaism and made it monotheist, they then start to get get rid of. Um, uh, you know, it becomes a very divisive thing. It starts to become an us and them thing. If you, so Akhenaten wanted to get rid of any rival cult, which other Egyptians had, you know, Egyptian rulers had favoured one god over another, but they didn't try and eliminate the others. And it shows you what the psychology, you know, was that was involved in this, because, of course, Akhenaten, trying to impose his monotheism on the Egyptian people, they hated him for it. They, you know, where's our goddesses? Where's our, you know, where's Isis? Where's our goddesses? Um, and you know you you can't get away with it. Um, certainly not in the Egyptian um, religion or the, the the Egyptian mindset, which you know craved goddesses. But actually, when you think about it, everybody craves a goddess, whether they know it or not. Oh, absolutely. And I'm wondering if if the figure, the the persona of um, Asherah or Sophia or any of them. If it's not necessarily that person, but that level of consciousness people are seeking, so that so that you know you you want you want wisdom, you want gentleness, you want so so this person represents that, so that's what you're that's what you're drawn to. Um, I, I think that the the whole philosophy of monotheism doesn't really work because there are so many different cults, sects whatever i mean you you had even that you know destroying the sex in in early christianity as well because there were tons of different sex cults whatever of of christianity at one time until they started to sort of beat them into submission and pull them all into the one roman catholic church well yes and that that's actually very interesting because we realized you know actually just a few days ago that in both Judaism and Christianity, the goddess was thrown out, basically, um, in both cases, when the religion was codified, when the rules were set up, um, and which is, of course, a very, very male thing to do. You know, this is the way you're going to do it or else. Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, so you, you have certainly the various committees and councils like Nicaea in the third, fourth century, um, basically setting up what, as you say, what became Roman Catholic religion or Christianity as it was then, um, and and basically, you know, they they threw out everything to do with a goddess or everything to do with the sacred feminine. Um, it was their idea of what they wanted Christianity to be, and there was no room for the goddess in it. And that's essentially what happened when they were codifying Judaism. They, you know, the men decided there's no room for a goddess here. And they, little did they realize, or perhaps they didn't care, that they were actually condemning um, generations of, of their followers or generations of their people 
to a really, at the very least, uneasy relationship with with themselves, actually, with, with various aspects of themselves. But, I mean, really condemning them to the complete imbalanced psychology and, if you like, soul. Yeah, it just it seems to me that, you know, you have to have logic and reason um, or, or, well, you don't have to, but it makes life easier if you have it. Yeah. And, and it just, to me, I see no harm in having a sacred feminine that stands uh, alongside the, the, the quote unquote God and, you know, so that you have a God and goddess and uh, you know, they don't have to be, um, you know, I, first of all, you know, marriage isn't all that, you know, marriage is is an institution that has been created, but there has always been a balance of male and female, whether whether or not the element of marriage is brought into it or not. You know, there there's a pairing. Yeah, and actually it's, it's interesting that in Christianity you have a trinity, which is assumed anyway to be all male, you know, father, son, um, Holy Spirit, which is taken to be male. So, you know, no suggestion of, of any sacred feminine at all there. But the ancient Egyptian trinity was father, mother, and child. I mean, how much more psychologically healthy is that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And um, the Holy Spirit, um, you know, became part of the Christian trinity. Um originally was female was perceived of as 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 a, a female force or entity um and it's only part of this creating the dogma or the dogma of the trinity that suddenly the holy spirit becomes um becomes seen as male because in that context of what they're trying to do in that dogma it couldn't be anything else but prior to that it had always been looked upon as um a female force in the same way that wisdom was how did they get away with this, though? I mean, was it was it when um, they wanted to have something in writing that uh, that at that particular point in time it was the males that had the dominance and the control? I mean, it, it just it it doesn't make sense to me that that they were able to, as as you so gently put it, airbrush out the females because they were originally in scriptures and things like that, but they seem to have been removed. And, and even in places during the time of Jesus, they've taken the names of females out to kind of diminish their validity or their purpose in, in his discipleship. Well, uh, you can get away with a lot if you threaten those who go against what you say with, you know, being burnt on a, pyre or something yeah that would um, work <laughs> yeah it would work wouldn't it yes it would work with me i have to say i like sure. it short. um um but also um certainly where christianity is concerned um you know sorry to put it so bluntly but to me the catholic church has got away with an awful lot over the years because it could because not only was it violent towards those who crossed it crossed it in any way but also because most of its flock couldn't read so basically the only person in the neighbourhood who could read would be the local priest, and he would tell you what the Bible said, and he would tell you what the Pope said, and he would tell you what you have to believe. And you weren't educated, and you just thought, he's God's representative around here, so we just have to listen to it. So basically, 
you know, they, for centuries and centuries they could get away with it because the awkward bits of the New Testament of the Christian Bible, you know, they would never know them. They would just never come across them for themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take it <clears throat> into the New Testament, then then you get the story of Jesus, which is, it, it, you know, it, there's so much contradiction here and there. And what I've what I've run across in so many different places have been, you know, the 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 kind of toss up, you know, who is the Messiah, Jesus or John the Baptist? Well, yes, and it was certainly a toss-up between the followers of both of them. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that's something that's something that um, you know most Christians don't even have an inkling of. They just don't, they don't even know about that, you know, because they fall for the propaganda in the New Testament, which, after all, you know, as you said, um, history had been written by the victors, and the victors in that little showdown were, of course, um, if you like, the Jesus faction. Mm-hmm. Not the, not the John the Baptist faction, but actually the truth is, and this again has been pieced together by academics, the truth is that John the Baptist and Jesus were arch rivals. Uh, although the, the evidence is that Jesus began as one of John the Baptist's um, disciples himself, but then mm-hmm. broke away, and and John um, became very um, suspicious, if you like, of what he was up to and what he was saying and doing. Um, and actually, there is a bit in the New Testament itself, which um, most people who read it obviously just don't notice it. It just it just passes, you know, over their heads. But there's a bit where John the Baptist is in in Herod's jail, and he gets a message out to Jesus, saying, "Are you really the one who is to come, or do we look for another?" So at the very very last minute before he's murdered, before he's executed, he has doubts about Jesus. And, you know, considering that he's supposed to have fallen down and, say, and said, this is the Messiah, everybody worship him. Mm-hmm. Um, this is astonishing. But, you know, people don't draw attention to it and nobody notices it. Well, during those times, though, didn't they, I mean, they had um, prophecies of a Messiah and, and and there were so many Messiah-like people coming up. It was almost like they'd say, oh, it's another one. Yes. And, and Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we always say that, Probably the, the, the most accurate um, uh, biblical uh, movie ever made, certainly as far as the New Testament is concerned, is actually The Life of Brian. Yes. Um, <laughs> that has more research in it than yeah, anything else. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 faith, the scenes in that where they portray you know, all the different mm. prophets and people mm. sort of standing around giving their different messages, mm. that's the way it was. We kind of, we've always had that impression that um, you know, people were just milling around. Jesus came along, and a lot of people said, "Ah, oh, this is the Messiah." Uh, the rest of the people rejected him, and that's the kind of end of the story. But there was lots of people claiming, and it wasn't just the Messiah, um, because of the just the times that they were living in. You know, under the oppression of the Romans and and everything like that. Um, there were all these kind of different expectations flying around. Um, you know, some people thought uh, that God was going to come back into the world. Some thought that an angel, God was going to send an angel to, um, you know, to, to save the people. Um, uh, some people thought that there was this thing called a prophet like Moses, uh, that were a similar 
profit like a super profit kind of thing was going to arise um so there are many many different expectations um there wasn't just of the messiah the messiah i mean the messiah itself was was supposed to be a um basically a military leader a king mm-hmm. supposed to be a, a a spiritual figure at all um and so, you know, you've just got all these different ideas and expectations that something, somebody was going to happen. And, and what's interesting, Jesus seems to have played up to several of them. Um, and one of the interesting things that we've always found is that, you know, when John the Baptist, um, as he seemed to at the, the beginning of Jesus' mission, did seem to kind of elevate him as somebody and saying, you know, this is the person we're waiting for, never uses the word Messiah. He just calls him the one who was to come. Yeah. Also, when, you know, as Lynn said, the, 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 this message that John the Baptist got out of prison uh, questioning Jesus, he doesn't say, are you really the Messiah? He says, are you really the one to, who is to come or should we seek another? And it's almost like the avoiding using a specific term Mm. um which incidentally is one of the things that indicates that those passages are genuine because if a later christian had made them up he would have just said christ Mm. not Mm -hmm. left it so vague but yeah fascinating things going on then yeah you're the messiah i should know i followed a few (laughs) (laughs) yeah If if, if you really want to get a a feel for what it was actually really like, then watch Life is Brian. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Uh, One of the best researched um, movies of all time. Yeah. It really is a good movie. I mean, it it is, um, yes, it's funny and poignant at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you you start thinking, okay, so they had doubts. Maybe he had doubts. I mean, could it be they're still waiting for the first Messiah? Or, or one of these other figures. So there's all these other um, uh, expectations. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a thing that is very significant in the history as, as we've constructed it, reconstructed it, um, is that not enough attention is given to the Samaritans and Samaria. Mm-hmm. That appears to be the key. For, for example, it is where um, the evidence that we've unearthed uh, indicates that when the goddess was erased from Judaism, um, you know the religion of the tribe of Judah centered in Jerusalem um, the the goddess worship actually survived in Samaria, and it, that becomes very important in the story that that we have to tell um, but uh, you know everybody knows you know we all know back from Sunday school that um, you know the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get on with each other. But people never really stopped to think why, um, why they didn't. And in fact, that rivalry goes way, way back, right uh, back to the time of, well, uh, just after the time of King Solomon. In fact, well, actually before that, to, to David, because there was a big rivalry between two of the tribes over which one led, not just politically, but religiously. Uh, one was the tribe of Ephraim, that was the original leader, the ones that originally had the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was the tribe of Judah that came to the fore later, took power from them, took the Ark of the Covenant from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, the Samaritans were the descendants of the tribe of Ephraim. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had this huge rivalry. Um, and both claimed that they represented 
the true religion as it had been taught by Moses, taught and practiced by Moses. They and they each claimed the other one had got it wrong, had kind of perverted the religion. Now, history being written by the victors yet again, um, you know, it was the Bible was written by the tribe of Judah, so it makes them into the the people that were right and the Samaritans were wrong. Um, we think it's the other way round. Um, that actually it was the Samaritans who retained the correct original form with the other gods and the goddess in it. And that becomes, it's, it's a big part of the story that, that, that we tell. Well, you know, it's it's interesting in that, um, you know, you, you have all of this political stuff going on, and, and yet the message that, that comes through, and, and it's unfortunate that, that, even the Bible has muddied the message that was being given to humanity. Well, yes, and it's it's mostly due to this business of trying to codify religions and lay down rules about this is what you're going to believe. You know, certainly with the New Testament, when you're thinking about um, just something quite simple, like how did the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John end up there? Um, And that was, as you know, through a series of votes of councils of men um, who decided that they they were the best um, examples of what they wanted the new religion of Christianity to be like. And so it's interesting to look at what they rejected. And what they rejected were books very like the so-called Gnostic Gospels, many of which were found again, discovered in 1945. Uh, in Egypt, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, although that was found somewhat earlier, but Gospel of Mary, brackets Magdalene. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody is claiming, by the way, that the people uh, that, that Mary actually wrote it. Sadly, in those days, people stuck somebody's name on, you know, on a book, and that was fine. <laughs> um, um, it wouldn't be fine now, but you know. Um, but but yeah, so it, um, it's. Ever since I discovered, uh, well, we discovered about um, the Gnostic Gospels, the ones that were not included in the New Testament, you know, the, the forbidden books, you know, and they're, they're, there's only we've only got a few of them, but there were possibly hundreds of them, you know, saying very different things about Jesus and his mission and the, pe- the people that he surrounded himself with. Um, but those are the books that have clues to what he was really about. Um, you know, which of course means that by saying that, I and we are taking issue with the the guys who invented, as you like, or codified uh, the Catholic religion. Well, yeah, I mean, it just to me, by rejecting all of the others, you have you see it, what you see here is the creation of a religion and then a, a corporate entity and then a dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, yeah. it's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is corporate. Yeah. Um, but it is one of those. It's the things you know, Lynn said earlier about making the rules, and it is a matter of once you've made rules and you've said this this is right in mm. terms of belief, mm. then by definition you have to say anyone that believes anything different is wrong. Yeah. And that's when the trouble starts. You've got to be on mission. Yeah. Yeah, talking of corporate, on, on mission, yeah. yes, and stick to the brand's name. But it, it naturally, once you go through that process, it naturally creates intolerance because you yeah. can't say, 
well, okay, someone believes something slightly different, but but that's okay because you've now got rules. You know, mm. This is what you believe. Mm. You know, or else. The, you know, or else. The famous mm. the Nicene Creed, for example. You know mm-hmm. that you have to believe that uh, Jesus is one and the same as God, which I kind of never entirely got got my head around. Um, but that was just one choice that was mm. picked by an emperor, um, Emperor Theodosius in 381 um he um he was the one that decreed um that christianity could be the only religion of the empire but he didn't just decree that he said it's only one sort of christianity because as you said earlier there were so many different versions so many different interpretations um but he said no only the um, the, the, the version that is set out in the Nicene Creed, agreed at the Council of Nicaea, is correct. Anyone else, even if they claim to be a Christian, even if they revere Jesus, um, if they don't believe that particular creed, um, then you know, then they're punished. And, and anyone that adheres to any other religion at all, all the other pagan religions, and it just seems to be this consequence of. You know, it does have a political element. Um, you know, that the Emperor Theodosius had political reasons in part for doing this. It enabled him to control things better. Um, but it, as soon as you start to get down to there is only one God and there's only one set of rules, you know, then the inevitable consequence is intolerance. But but it's interesting, you know, that the Catholic Church has all these different saints who, you know, govern, if you like, various aspects of life. You know, they're patron saint of so-and-so, the patron saint of so-and-so. And that is a very watered-down version of having lots of gods. Um, so it, it's like, it's a, a strange, perhaps unconscious recognition that people want that. Well, if the gods, you know, that were extra and left over became angels... Then, then that just makes sense that you know you take your 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 gods that yeah. have extra powers and extra you know because in order to become a saint you have to have documented miracles ergo yeah. ergo a yeah. god so yeah. it's the same it's the same system under a different name I mean what's wrong with the as far as I can tell and it's just my own personal belief system and it's not carved in stone I change it daily but mm-hmm. right today um, it just seems ridiculous to me that that a religion or a belief or a connection to a god or goddess is a very personal experience and it shouldn't have anything to do with with what you feel or think or or anybody else so have they taken the concept of religion and made it a political tool today well it it, it is that and that's very much the difference isn't it between organized religion and spirituality because spirituality is a private thing and actually it's it's you know one of the last things that they can't control you know it's what goes in what goes on in your own mind and in your own soul they can't control that, or at least, you know, hopefully, hopefully they can't, you know. Um, but um, but an organised religion, you know, you can you can tell people, and of course this has happened, as we know, I mean, over and over again, and it's still happening on, on a huge scale. You know, the, the priests just lay down the law and say, you're going to hell if you, if you don't do this, you know, or if you do this, um, and they have absolute power. Um, and that, you know, co- it constantly feeds itself. The power goes back to the source 
and it's it's beyond politics after a while it's a thing all by itself you know just like you know there's such a thing as vatican city it's it's a, a state you know all yeah. by itself true well so but but the reality is the sacred feminine is still there i mean i i'm seeing um i'm seeing far more people um in, you know investigating um paganism and the fact that the sacred feminine is there. I mean, the, the sacred feminine is even still in the Bible when you, when you talk about Mary Magdalene being the consort of, of Jesus. Yes, the consort, but we, um, we don't agree that they were legally married, um, which, of course, sets us on a bit of a path uh, that is different from a lot of people. Um, but what, what we say is that Mary was Jesus' beloved, Mm -hmm. In many respects, she was his priestess. She was his great beloved. Um, and he's kind of in, she, one person in a circle. You know, they were spiritual equals. Um, she was an amazing woman. Not perfect, but an amazing woman. Um, but, um, you know, people say, oh, well, obviously they were married. Um, well, no, um, there's actually no evidence they were actually married. Jesus must have been married at one point in his life because at that time and at that place, Every single boy aged about 16, certainly to towards the age of 20, had to be married. I mean, no excuses, no exceptions, just had to be married. So Jesus would have been married to somebody, you know, way back. Um, but we don't know what happened to that wife. It almost certainly was not Mary Magdalene, who is treated um, very oddly by the writers of the, the books of the New Testament, um, by the... Well, but, yeah, and they called him rabbi, and all rabbis are married. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, all men were. Yeah, well, well, yeah but, but wait, who invented marriage? Well, there's a question. There, there is a question, yes. I, I suppose, when you think, every culture must have had their yeah. kind of symbolic... Handfast type yes, thing. Yes, joining yeah. of a, yeah. a man and woman to, into yeah. a new family, Yeah, uh, which is obviously regarded as joining the two families as yeah. well, of course. Yeah. Um, so they must have had I mean, But yeah. is there something that has always been? I don't know. Very good question. Very good <laughs> question, never, yeah. Never thought mm. of that. Mm. But, yeah. um, I, mean, I mean, it became a legal, <clears throat> a legal um, document, a legal uh, thing that happened. But, you know, if you go back far enough, um, people stayed together while they got along together and when they didn't they just went other their ways i mean when did marriage become so restrictive yeah. well again i think we're talking about it must be when you think about it talking about some kind of period of codification you know laying down the laws um but don't know when don't know when hmm. well well so okay so so they were partners yes exactly well, in every sense yeah. yes but there was, and, there was also um um, what I'd call a, a sacred marriage element, which mm -hmm. may have kind of contributed to the idea that they were actually man and wife, um, because um, you know there, there there was certainly amongst some of the um, other you know the alternative um, Christian sects in the early days um, this rite called um, uh, the the bridal chamber which was the, the highest right of baptism and all the others, um, which does appear to have involved, as in many um, cults, sects and religions of um, uh, in the ancient world, a, you know, a 
I was going to say a symbolic union of priest and priestess. It wasn't symbolic. It was an actual union, but it was symbolizing the um, union of the god and goddess. Um, and there's a lot of bride and bridegroom imagery actually in the New Testament Gospels, which taken out of the context of a kind of sacred marriage thing doesn't make a, a, an awful lot of sense. So over the centuries, oh, well, over the last 2,000 years, theologians have tried to explain what this, uh, why Jesus keeps talking about himself as a bridegroom and saying, well, it's obviously symbolizing his marriage to the church, which, of course, is an because it didn't exist. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but then when you put it together with these, you know, these Gnostic sources that have this ritual of the um, of the bride uh, of the the bedchamber, um, it starts to make a lot of sense. And when you see Mary Magdalene as a priestess, which is what we think the evidence shows that she was. I mean, she did the most amazing thing, and it's strangely enough, there it is in the New Testament itself. She christened Jesus. She marked him out for his great fate, whatever that might be, but, you know, for his great destiny. Because the name or the, the, the title Christ actually means anointed one. Mm-hmm. And there's no other anointing in the New Testament apart from the woman with the jar full of perfumed oil um, who anoints Jesus. And the men you know the the likes of saint peter standing around had no idea what was going on and obviously got their reaction completely wrong they they, they, sneered, they, they sneered at her but jesus said no 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 you know she's she's doing an amazing thing and jesus said obviously not in literally these words but he said wherever the gospel is preached her name will be celebrated and isn't it interesting that it's not? In fact, actually, you have to do a lot of digging to work out that it's Mary Magdalene who is doing it. Because the woman do, doing the christening, the the anointing, is in fact not named at all. Um, I mean, but she did the amazing thing. And she and Jesus obviously knew what it meant. It was a, a ritual that had obviously been set up by them in advance. And the men, who the male disciples, who everybody in Christianity supposes were Jesus's inner circle, who knew everything about what he was about, had no idea what this was, this amazing anointing by this woman. And the fact that she was a woman, of course, but, I mean, they do, they do say, what, you know, what is this woman doing? You know, it was a very big thing with them. Um, and if you look at the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Thomas, um, basically everything leaps into sharp focus and you see that in fact the male disciples especially Simon Peter hated Mary Magdalene mm. because she had this immense power um, in the movement and you know it, 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 to, to be blunt she appeared to have some power over Jesus I mean even in, in the Gnostic Gospel she even gets Jesus to change his doctrine um, by suggesting something else um, and he, he says, oh, yes, oh, yes, absolutely, brilliant, you know, let's go with it. So um, she was she was very important, but she was sailing very close to the wind with the, with the men, especially Peter. I mean, he, he, again, from the Gnostic Gospels, we know that, you know, he actually threatened to kill her. Um, well, they were, Jesus and Mary had a synchronicity of, of spiritual understanding and communication between them. There's no doubt about that. And and I, I think maybe they they 
they didn't want to portray her as being as intellectually um, gifted as he was. And that his message was something that they both understood and worked at trying to get it out to the populace. Uh, yes, I think that's that's a large part of it. You know, they certainly worked in partnership, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Um, I think part of the reason was that they was, um, I think Jesus was playing a bit of a, um, you know, he, he had to balance things because the, um, the, the the reconstruction that we have from the, you know the story that we put together is that a large part of the um, pur- purpose of Jesus' mission was to try to restore the sacred feminine that had been written out mm-hmm. only a few centuries before, you know, not 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 that long ago, um, and which we believe had the you know, the original form of the religion, even though it's now very tightly controlled by the temple in Jerusalem. Um, what the religion had been um, was remembered underground secretly in Samaria, also amongst um, uh, Jewish and Samaritan um, uh, groups that uh, settled in Egypt. And that's that's specifically talked about in the Bible. Um, So that this idea that there had been a goddess, that there uh, there had been a goddess who had had her own priesthood, which was uh, both male and female, you know, priests and priestesses as part of that. That this survived underground, and it was an important part of what Jesus and Mary Magdalene were about, was trying to bring that back. But certainly when they moved into Jerusalem, which is obviously the centre of the religion, the centre of authority, they had to be a little bit careful about the goddess elements of it. So um, that, which probably accounts for why the, he's trying to play to two audiences. One is the Jewish audience um, that has been for a few generations under the control of the temple um, and don't understand the bits about the sacred feminine. You know, you have to introduce that very carefully. You know? Yeah. So, um, so he's got his male disciples who don't appear to know the full story and obviously led by Peter, because it's, it's very clear from the New Testament Gospels that there's a group around Jesus, which includes Mary Magdalene, which includes the the, the family at Bethany where he stays um, just before you know the, the final days in Jerusalem, um, that kind of are behind the mission, that facilitate the mission, that help the mission, but that the disciples don't really understand and it doesn't include them so I think part of the reason that the New Testament Gospels wrote Mary Magdalene out is in large part the people the the group of early Christians that were responsible for those Gospels actually didn't fully understand what it was about Um, but nevertheless they still went further than that and you know so partly it was just confusion, you know, what is this woman doing? You know, how, <laughs> how, does, how does this fit into Jewish ritual? Well, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, so that was part of the motivation. Mm. But I think it went, you know, further mm. than that. Mm. There was an element of actual misogyny in this. You know. mm. Well, I think one of the interesting things that, that, that so many people miss 
or or don't get is that it was not his intent to create another religion. His intent was to alter Judaism to to more embrace what its original purpose was. Yeah, exactly. But having said that, of course, there is also the element of that almost certainly Jesus and virtually everybody that is talked about in the New Testament um, would, would believe that the world was would end within a generation or two of their own time. So everything that they said has to be really seen against a backdrop of the coming apocalypse as far as they were concerned. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a shock to realize that, you know, the fact that we're sitting here talking to you about this in the 21st century, Jesus would be shocked if he knew that there was uh, a 21st century. <laughs> probably, probably shocked at what they've done with his teachings because um, – I, I, there is a purity to them, a simplicity of them that, you know, goes back to the golden rule among other things. But, but I, his intent, I don't think, was to cause a revolution. It was to create a, a greater wholeness in his own his own time frame, his own period of time. I, I think there was inevitably a political dimension to what he was doing because it couldn't it couldn't be otherwise you know given the everything that was going on there you know the expectations of the jewish people um well you know, all of the hebrew people the samaritans included um you know that um you know that, that uh, they were going to be delivered from the oppression of the romans so anyone that stands up again going back to life of brian makes it very this <laughs> brilliantly um that you know, inevitably, anyone that had a religious message had to also have a political message. It would always be seen that way. So, and we think that there, there was that element. Jesus is trying to restore the religion uh, to what it had been, but that also has this. Um, you know, a large part of that is also bringing together the different tribes, which includes the Samaritans. Get, trying to get the Samaritans and Jews to work together was not going to be an easy task after all these um, literally hundreds of years of rivalry between the between the two. Um, but um, you know, so and he's, he's challenging the temple authority, mm-hmm. which has a big political um, power um, that works together with the Romans to sort of keep the status quo running. So it, it's not just a spiritual message that's in the teaching. There is inevitably this uh, political aspect, which, I mean, Jesus was fully aware of and was, um, you know, that that's part of his mission too. It wasn't solely about, uh, you know, uh, the, the teaching. Teachings are important, of course. And... Um, one of the most interesting things that we found in the research for this book um, was um, the, the, the significance in Jesus' teaching of wisdom of Sophia, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't isn't just wisdom with a small w. Sophia was uh, a, a female figure, but essentially a goddess figure, a sort of repackaging of Asherah and the wisdom tradition that had gone with her um, into a kind of a new form uh, to try and kind of slide it past people. That, uh, But it's very much that Jesus portrayed himself as the messenger of Sophia. So essentially as the messenger of 
a female wisdom figure. And we wonder who that was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the, the, a certain lady would have let him forget that she was there in the background. <laughs> Probably not. No, I mean, certainly not. They, you know, it, it's funny in in every portrayal I've ever seen of of this story and and <clears throat> everything that, that that came about, it it's it's all very flat, and there's yes. there's no there's no insightful anything to it. it it's like it, it, it's a flat story, and you know when when you see it that flat, you know that you're not getting the whole picture, and yes. it, you know I it's. It's, you have nothing of his first 30 years. And, you know, it, it's sort of like um, I once said to somebody about, um, oh, who was it? Um, about one, uh, one of the, um, the uh, gurus that people were following, and, and it was a female. And I said to this friend of mine, I said, look, she, she's got to have cramps and bad days just like the rest of us. Yes, and she yes. looked at me like, you can't say that about her. Oh, and, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and it's like even Jesus. Come on, he yeah. he was he was born of human. He was human, mm-hmm. but but he was also a, a you know a god. But but he was also human, and that means you know you often wonder if he hit his thumb and he had to swear. What would he have sworn by? You know, the beards of our fathers. He certainly couldn't have said Jesus Christ. So yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, I've, I've come in for quite a bit of flack from various communities in the New Age who believe or seem to believe that Mary Magdalene is an untouchable goddess and you can't even question her, you know. Um, my line, of course, is pretty much your line about, about Jesus. You know, she existed, she was a woman, she represented the goddess in rituals, but she was not a goddess, you know. And And actually, if you read the Gnostic Gospels, her personality, even after all this time, does emerge. And she was actually quite abrasive, very manipulative. Um, you know, at one point, and quite condescending, actually, because at one point she says to Jesus um, about some point of doctrine that obviously been talking about, just the two of them. And she says, why don't you tell the others about about that thing we were talking about? She said, so that even they might understand. <laughs> And you think, oh, dear, um, you know, um, and she also was incredibly assertive, um, which is obviously a good thing. But, you know, she obviously had no time for any of the niceties and the finesse of being a woman in that time and place, possibly because, you know, she spent a lot of time in Egypt. And, you know, basically, as a woman of means, she was she was rich, um, uh, that, you know, basically she would have it all pretty much all her own way because of the egalitarian society of Egypt in those days. Mm-hmm. So she wouldn't really care about these rough men from Galilee, you know. Um, uh, they would be appalled by her you know, knocking around with her hair loose and, you know, standing up and opining, you know, voicing her own opinions um, and, and saying, as I said earlier, you know, at one point saying to Jesus, um, actually, let's think about that, shall we? That point of doctrine you just raised. Um, if, no, what about if it's this instead? And Jesus saying, "Oh, no, that's just wonderful. Well done, thou good and faithful Magdalene." You know, <laughs> there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that going on. So yeah, I mean, now, you know, she was certainly um, no uh, it, uh, unhuman 
being, you know, that you can't challenge. Um, I mean, I like her all the more for it. She was just very, very human. Well, does that explain sort of, I mean, I know Peter hated her. So, so is that possibly um, part of the reason why, why in some, in some stories she, she left um, the, she left Israel and, and she went to France in order to escape and, it, does and make sense. it does make sense, a lot of sense, because, you know, there's certainly over and over you get this, this pitch, almost pitch battles between Magdalene and Peter and sometimes some of the other male disciples in the Gnostic Gospels. And, you know, Peter threatens to kill her. Jesus smooths it all over yet again. But then, for whatever reason, Jesus is out of the picture and Mary basically has to run for it. You know, I mean, that's the impression you get. And mm-hmm. certainly, given the setup, her relationship with the men and with with uh, with Peter, you can imagine once Jesus isn't there to to look after her, she would have to go. And it made sense to go to France or Gaul, as it then was, yeah. um, because um, that's where a lot of rich um, Jews had had. Actually, they had holiday homes. I mean, <laughs> it's funny to put it like that, but they did. So you know, yeah, Pont- Pontius Pilate retired there <laughs> um so th- this was the place where you you know you retired to you had yeah. your you had your villa yeah. um it's at the right at the other end of the empire to jerusalem yeah. so if you're going to get away that's the logical place to be yeah you know it, you know it's, it's not as strange as it sounds with her well, being so for france you know. so that that would explain the cathars and and the fact that that you know so many that there is there is definitely uh a significant group of people that that not above Jesus, but certainly alongside him, they 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 worship her. I mean, you know, there's no other way to put it. Yeah, in in certainly in um in the early days when you know pre- presumably because she arrived there and started as as the local legends still have it, you know, she started preaching and baptizing. She baptized mm-hmm. and actually the. The traditionalists there don't seem to realize the significance of that. They say, oh, yeah, she baptized. And you think, she was a woman. Come on, think about it. That is so jaw-dropping. But anyway, she did all of that. And she presumably converted a lot of people. Um, and um, But, you know, there was effectively a church of Mary Magdalene in, in that area of France. And uh-huh. possibly, you know, extended elsewhere. And yes, there's an awful lot of... Um, we might call primitive Christian beliefs seem to surface in the medieval um, Cathar so-called heresy. It just to me, it's it's you know when you look around how how there is has been over time, thousands of years a struggle to bring back that balance of of, of the sacred feminine along with the the god the god figure because. It it just it, it feels like it's it's a balance we've lost in in the times that are to come. Um, a balance is going to be a much easier way to deal with whatever comes our way. Well, yes, and and yeah, it's the way it's the way we're we're heading now. A lot of people now realise we need that balance. You know, a lot of you know, and, you know, show, shows like yours and the you know interest in in you know kind of books that that, that we've written. Um, yeah, which would have been impossible to write a hundred years ago or something but you know it's, there is growing awareness of this um partly as you know people now can read and are allowed to think for themselves which they didn't used to be um 
but also they're aware of um, you know the, the the what's missing inside themselves and seeing you know, where it's where it comes you know what the missing piece is um, you know I mean it, the way women are beginning to you know assert themselves you know their rights just in an everyday kind of political workspace sense, um, you know, asserting what they should always have been is is one big part of it. But of course, there's the, the, the spiritual side that people are now beginning to explore, you know. Um, but, you know, the, the subtitle of our book, I mean, we've called our book When God Had a Wife, you know, like with every title, it's just so that when, to make people stop and think and say, hey, what mm-hmm. do look up? Uh, the <laughs> subtitle... Is um, well, you have to grab the audience, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but let me, if we put the subtitle as it's the the fall and rise of the sacred feminine yeah. in the Judeo-Christian tradition, mm. not as people might expect, um, you know, the rise and fall, mm. um, because it was something it was there to begin with in you know, in in the, the Israelite religion in what became the Judeo-Christian tradition. It was there to begin in, begin with, and it was taken out. It fell. But as you as you said, you know, over the last couple of thousand years, there's been various groups trying to put it back in, and now um, you know she is rising again, inevitably. Mm. You know, it's just um, you know un- unstoppably. So um, and and it's coming about both from a kind of spiritual revival, um, but it's also coming about from the discoveries of you know academic things, archaeology. Um, of you know, scholars actually looking at the text and the language and the translations and actually saying this has been translated wrongly for the last however many thousand years. What these words actually mean is something quite different. Um, so, you know, a, a big reason for us writing the book was to make the point of how the hard facts, you know, the actual you know archaeological discoveries, textual discoveries, scholarship. And the kind of the, the, the spiritual side are coming together. And also the idea of a balance, obviously, psychologically and spiritually is, is, you know, exactly what we need at the moment. And it's been striven for. But, of course, there is a problem there. And that is that balance is very, very hard to maintain. I mean, it's, it's more or less impossible, but it's the striving to maintain the balance that is the important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that bothers me slightly is that while... I'm 100% behind the whole idea of bringing the goddess back and, and celebrating the goddess. But it worries me slightly that in the years to come, the, the masculine male principle will be denigrated because that's not balance. You know, balance is the two being celebrated together. Well, it me too. <laughs> I can't think why. Um, no, I, mean, I, I can see it that you know, I'm going to be blamed <laughs> for, for all for all the generations of men that have gone the other way. So it wasn't my fault. I wasn't around then. Um, but but, no, it, but it's, you know, it's it's the it's the sacred feminine within everybody as well as the sacred male. I mean, I yeah. it, you yeah. know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's men who are who are compassionate and recognize that 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 aspect of themselves, and women who who um, recognize a, a greater strength within themselves to you know. To, to draw attention to themselves and, and say, you know, listen to me, I have something to say instead of, yes, dear, okay, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's what I was going to say that it, it is not, you know, it's not just women that have lost by this removal of the of mm. the divine feminine. Mm. Um, obviously, w- women have lost more, you know, undeniably, but men have lost out too. You know, it, uh-huh. it, it's damaged them, damaged their psyche. So that's part of what's being uh, brought back. You know, it's going to help men too. It's not just a matter of putting men back in their place. You know, it's mm. it's us both men and women finding their place. But yeah. when you think about it, I mean, medieval churchmen actually seriously debated whether women have souls. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and, um, but when you have that kind of mindset uh, operating at every level from you know, the Vatican downwards to, to your local priest, it's going to affect not only individual women, but their children, some of whom obviously are going to be boys. You know? So everybody is affected by this a disrespect, to put it mildly, for the feminine. Everybody is going to filter down to, you know, little boy babies and, you know, and children growing up. And it, the, it, the attitude has undermined generation upon generation of people. I mean, it's true, if you look across the world at other religions that have goddesses, um, it's true to say that, you know, they're not necessarily sparkling examples of egalitarian everyday life. Mm-hmm. But certainly within Judaism and Christianity, you can trace back uh, certain really poor attitudes to to women to what happened to the goddess. Well, look at this country. It wasn't until the 1900s that women were thought to have the brains to be able to vote. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Or, or to attend university. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I mean, same. You know, same. Same in in the UK. Um, that uh, you know, I, I don't know when it was that the first universities started um, allowing women in, but it was certainly well into the 19th century. Well into the 20th. I mean, women could. Uh, I believe it's true to say that certainly in Britain, women could attend university in the early 20th century, but not actually graduate. Hmm. Oh no, they couldn't take the degree. They couldn't take the places, degree. Yeah. No, no. Um, you know, well, when I, when I look take... even. When I even look back on my own life, when you know I'm 75, so when I was in college, it was you could be a secretary, a nurse, a teacher, yeah. or an airline hostess, and yeah. that was that was yeah. about it. And yeah. and and so it's it's kind of like I think that that this and I'm not so sure it's sacred, but but there's an acknowledgement that there is a a balance that 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 there there is room for two sexes to have a balance between them it it isn't just that that men have it all and women have to be subservient and uh, yeah well well wait you go all the way back to the very beginning at least in the bible where where they say that 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 woman was created first (laughs) well yeah yes yeah well yes i mean they've Something we discuss in the book is dif- different interpretations of the Adam and Eve story, which is mm-hmm. normally sort of looked at as being, well, you, man, man is there first. Um, you know, Eve is created as his helper. You know, mm-hmm. as you say, um, and you know that has been, um, you know, looked on for for generations as being indicating that God Himself put women in a subservient position and it's only been in i think it's in the 1970s that um a a a woman scholar went back and looked at those texts and said okay yeah it says eve was created as adam's helper 
this I can't remember the, the uh, well, Eza is the word in Hebrew. So, but actually, in other places, exactly the same word is given to God as man's helper. And you're not going to say that God says he's subordinate, you know. So, so it's it's the way that word is it has been interpreted for a long time. Whereas it's you know it yes it's to help you, but it doesn't necessarily have a subversive implication. Mind you, that just going off a slight tangent there, but talking about you know the deliberate um, downplaying of, of female roles by the use of language in the New Testament, you have um, for, you know for almost the entire time of Christianity, you've had people saying, Jesus did not have female disciples. But no, he yes, quite he did. Yes, oh, he, quite, <laughs> he quite clearly did. He quite clearly did because um, in the New Testament, the same word that is translated for the male disciples as disciples um, uh, is the word that has traditionally been translated for the women as followers, as mere followers. But it's the same word. It's disciples and disciples. <laughs> well, uh, one of my favourite examples from the from the Old Testament of just how the, the way you interpret words changes the, the image of what you're talking about. Um, an important figure in the story that we tell is Deborah, who was one of the um, uh, one of the judges. This between um, the, the Israelites coming into the Promised Land and the establishment of the kingdom under David. Um, it's it's really a tribal confederation ruled by what what is called in the Bible judges, um, and an important one of those is a woman named Deborah. She's described also as a, a prophetess, um, and uh, you know, from her symbolism, she's very connected with Asherah and the wisdom con- con- uh, tradition. She's also described. She's one of those that has this title, mother in Israel which is kind of counsellor to the king. And she plays a, a big part in a particular war that uh, happens with, with, with the Canaanites. Um, but she also has another phrase described to her, which in the Bible is translated as wife of Lapidoth. In other words, she's just Lapidoth's wife. And strange enough, there is no character, uh, character of that name mentioned or even the fact she has a husband. And it's been pointed out, actually in Hebrew... Um, uh, wife and woman is the same word um, and also Lapidoth actually means torches or fire so you can translate her name as woman of fire which is a lot different from wife of some guy <laughs> you've never heard of you know? and it's just down to interpretation you know you, you change exactly the same words you translate them differently and you have a completely different view of this woman from being an obscure guy's wife to a woman of fire. Be interesting, wouldn't it, to do do a kind of feminist version of the Bible with the <laughs> with the proper translations of the word. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, yeah. We don't have the patience, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> or the Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Um, there is that. But you know, there's, and there's a lot of this, and it does say that translation of particular words to do with Eve in the Adam and Eve story. That if you look at them in a different way, actually change the balance of that story entirely, and according to to some scholars is also talking about a wisdom tradition that begins with eve it's this is the tradition that the 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 hebrew prophetesses go back to um 
And it's something in some of the early Christian sources we were looking at, it's the complete opposite way of the way Peter looks at it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it would be, wouldn't it? Because mm. Peter, in the, there's some... Um, uh, then was talking earlier about uh, Peter, Peter's hatred of Mary Magdalene in particular and what a, and women in in general in these Gnostic texts. Um, and you know, we always thought it's got this has the ring of truth to it because of the way the personalities are portrayed, as as, as Lynn said. But uh, there was still no kind of you're looking at those texts and saying, is there anything separate and independent we can compare that to? And in the research for this book, uh, we found actually there is, is some early Syrian Christian sources um, in which are based on a text attributed to Peter called The Teachings of Peter, which scholars have reconstructed. And what Peter talks about in that, he's saying that there were two types of prophecy there's male prophecy and there's female <laughs> prophecy. And, but only male prophecy is the real prophecy. Uh, and they both go back to Adam and Eve. You know, Adam started the male line of prophecy. Eve started the female line. Um, but it's only the um, male line that's, that, that's valid. That's real prophecy. Um, the, the female line, female prophecy, is false prophecy. This gives rise to the false prophets. It gives rise to it gives rise to the people that the true prophets, the male prophets, have to come to correct and to counteract. And interestingly, just as an aside, one of the people he includes in the female line of prophecy is John the Baptist, and says that's why he had to come first, so that. Jesus Christ, who's the male line of prophets, has to come to correct what he said. Now, it's interesting that this you've got, again, quite a misogynistic line in these teachings of Peter's from these early Syrian Christian traditions, uh, totally independent of those Gnostic Gospels, um, but still portraying and, and having nothing to say about Mary Magdalene in particular in those, because this is actually dealing with uh, uh, Peter after uh, after the crucifixion, um, that it's still portraying him as somebody that has a very negative view of the feminine and of women in particular, you know, of women, um, which is two completely different sources giving you the same image of this man, who, of course, is the person that the Church of Rome is is based upon. And that, that in itself is fascinating, though, because, of course, um, while as we were talking earlier about the fact that for centuries and centuries, you know, most ordinary Catholics couldn't read. They had to be told what was in the Bible, had to be told everything. And during that time, obviously, they believed that Simon Peter, St. Peter, had become uh, the Pope because he was the first person to see Jesus after the resurrection. Wrong. The first person, if you read the Bible, the first person to encounter the risen Jesus was Mary Magdalene. Of course, over the course of the, the last couple of centuries, various people have pointed this out to the Catholic Church, and they fall back a, a, on the line, really. Um, yeah, but she was a woman, so she didn't count. Ah. <laughs> and, well, and when she rushed to tell the disciples, they didn't believe her. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Because she is a woman. Well, there yeah. was there was another. I think it was in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, 
standard Christian uh, must be Catholic interpretation of that particular episode. Yeah, where someone said, "Well, why did um, why did um, Jesus choose to appear first to a woman?" And I said, "Well, the easiest way to get your message out is to tell a woman because she's a <laughs> bit to everybody." You know? <laughs> And it was, yeah, yeah. And these were kind of serious theological statements at one point. Yeah. We may laugh now. Well, I think I think we'd all have some rather choice words for Peter if you could summon him up now. Probably. It's strangest thing that you know. Yes, he he is the person that traditionally, um, you know, founded the church. Um, yeah, even the tradition historically is is. You know, a, a little dubious, but nevertheless, it's fascinating that he's supposed to be the person that founded um, a church which has not exactly been very kind or positive about women throughout its history. Well, did, did Jesus said, I believe, you know, thou art Peter, and upon you will I build my church. And what I find fascinating is that there were no churches then. Yeah, yeah he exactly. And he, he had have. no intention of, of, of yeah. starting a church anyway. He couldn't have said that. He, no. But they had to come up with some reason why he's called Peter, yeah. which yeah. is probably more... It, Peter meaning rock. Yeah, yeah. that's fun. Um, you know, and Jesus did give him this nickname of Peter based on rock. So they had to come up with an idea of why he made this kind of play on words. Uh, it's more likely a reference to Peter's temperament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or perhaps his head was a solid as a rock. Yeah, I was just thinking maybe he's... Well, I mean, there, there's a whole bit in, in one of the Gnostic Gospels where Jesus basically loses it with Peter and says, I've tried to explain the Gospel to you. I've tried to explain all these spiritual truths to you over and over again. But you are too stupid. You, you know, you're too dim to get it. You know, you know basically, please focus. Um and this is not the, the St. Peter that um, the Catholic Church would have us believe, um, believe in, basically. Um, you know, an entirely different sort of person. But who hated Mary Magdalene, who Jesus adored. And there's another implication there, which is they founded, you know, Peter founded this church. And it became um very much his church very uh, misogynistic and um very keen to basically wipe the magdalene off the face of the earth as far as they could i mean yes she's in the new testament but she's hardly there by name yeah. um you know you get the impression that they if they could have they would have left her out entirely but she was too well known so they had to leave her in um a bit you know a bit um but yeah so so basically the the, uh, if you like the early Vatican, the very, very early Vatican, when they were deciding how to frame their new church, their new religion, essentially, they, I mean, very clearly decided that they weren't going to have much Mary in there, you know, because she was obviously to them a byword for very assertive, very vocal women. And the point was that Jesus encouraged her to be both those things. He wanted her to be herself. He gave her a platform to speak, as becomes very obvious if you if you read the Gnostic Gospels, and not mm -hmm. just her, actually, other other women in the in the following too, but mainly her, mainly her. There's one bit where there's 42 question and answer session, and she answers 39 of them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you find it a little amusing that that the Catholic 
church itself was so male dominated, it was unbelievable, and yet they have had a female pope. Well, according to legend. According to legend, yes. But, you know, even, you know, and, and, but, didn't she have to pretend that she was a man? Yeah, she did have to pretend she was a man, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Until she had a baby. Yeah, well, yes, 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 an unfortunate uh, incident, I might say. Which is why, don't they now have every pope that he's elected has to sit upon a a throne with a cutout so they can have a look underneath and check? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, really? Yeah, oh, yes, yes, it's all part of the ritual. Yes, yeah. going back to to that. But I mean, I I I know it's, it sounds a ridiculous thing to say, but I I keep saying it these days. But you know, whenever on television or whatever, you you see um, the Pope and all the cardinals sitting there, and you think, where are the women? Mm. It's the twenty first century, guys. Come on! But of course, they are never going to let the reins go. They are never ever going to let a an- what to them would be another Magdalene figure coming because they'd be afraid she'd take over. Well, it's, it's another consequence of what we were talking about earlier. When you fix doctrine and you fix the rules, one of the implications is that anyone that doesn't believe it is wrong. Um, but the other thing, it makes it very hard to change your mind because you suddenly have to say, well, oh, that thing we've been telling you for 2,000 years, uh, actually we decided it's not right after all. Mm-hmm. You, know, you kind of get... You 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 know you lock yourself into yeah. um, something. It's an inflexibility to do. Oh it. yeah, when you say at, you know when you it's sort of like never say never. And, yeah. and the other thing is it, to not be absolute about anything because as soon as you are, then you have to back up and and explain yourself why you know you've changed your mind a little bit or there's evidence that goes another direction yeah. and and you know i think one one of the fascinating things that i found with your book was was that that island in the middle of the nile uh, elephantine or yeah that that had jewish temples and and structures in it and and that's in the middle of the nile in egypt so and and that documented way back too so yes, yes. well actually um Way back, but but surprisingly late. This is it's about the same time that um, in in the you know the middle of the the fifth century BC that Jerusalem is standardising the religion and codifying it. At the same time, there's this community uh, actually of Hebrew uh, mercenaries, um, um, Israelites and, and Jews were actually very praised for their fighting skills in the ancient world. Uh, there's this community of um, of mercenaries on this island in the, in the Nile. Uh, they have their own temple. Um, not, none of this was known until it's all come out within the last hundred and really the last fifty years from archaeological discoveries because there's nothing in the the written historical record about this community and this temple at all. It's only when they started to, they actually excavated it and and found many, many texts there um, uh, to do with this community generally, not not just the religion. But they had this temple to Yahweh, um, but also in that temple, he worshipped alongside her, sorry, alongside him, um, was a goddess, actually not Asherah this time, but Anat, the war goddess that we mentioned earlier, um, which obviously makes sense for a community of, of mercenaries. Um, now, uh, 
the assumption has always been that this community as it had been in Egypt and cut off from you know the rest of um, I, I was going to say the Jews it, it could be Samaritans as well you see that's why we always prefer the term Hebrew really just to be more precise because it could come from say the Samaritan line um, and you know no one's really sure about this but the assumption was that because they'd been cut off um, they had adopted pagan ways from the um, Egyptians they were living among and to be honest when we, we wrote the Templar Revelation um, you know over 20 years ago um, uh, that's what we assumed as well it's only from the research that we've done for this new book that we've actually realized um, for reasons that we go into in the book uh, that actually that community had been there a very long time and it actually preserved you know they hadn't added a goddess in they preserved the original form of the israelite religion um you know that the goddess had been taken out of the official version in jerusalem and the temple um so this community actually kept to a much earlier form um in which the goddess paired with yahweh actually wasn't asher at that point it was anat say the war goddess who does feature in some in between the lines of the Hebrew Bible she's there um, and our reconstruction of that and you know one has to speculate because there really isn't a lot of evidence left is that in the earliest times when um, the Israelites were kind of permanently at war with the people around them you know Canaanites Philistines um, you know before the kingdom was established um, that Yahweh, who was a very um, uh, kind of warlike god, he's always kind of telling them to go and massacre other peoples, you know, go and invade this land and kill everybody in it. Um, that his consort at that time was actually Anat, the war goddess, who was this very, very uh, bloodthirsty, uh, very scary, actually also, also very sexual, lustful um, uh, goddess that that was um, Yahweh's original consort later when the kingdom was established and everything settled down and things were a bit more peaceful they realised that Hannah wasn't a great role model for <laughs> the, the daughters of the people of Israel and, and they actually kind of smoothed over and, and what had been El's wife Asherah was yeah. sort of given over to Yahweh instead which, which is something that happened in the ancient world a lot they were very fluid about uh, god forms and goddess forms and even you know linking you know, changing a mother to a daughter at some point which happened there's, there's other parallels with that you know so, um but uh so yes yeah, so there's this community that and this is down to around about the year 400 is um uh still retaining that original form of the religion because of uh, things that happened you know, when um, Alexander the Great uh, invaded Egypt um, and things changed around, that community was moved and has um, uh, nobody knows what happened to it. You know that that whole community in Elephantine Island, which comprised you know it, there was Egyptians there too. It, it was a garrison town. They were all moved out, um, and we don't know what happened. To that community once it had moved on but it's, it's about 400 bc 
still worshipping a goddess alongside Yahweh. Um, that community moved on somewhere, and they wouldn't have changed their beliefs, you know. No. Um, so the know, goddess wouldn't have gone quietly. No. Not that goddess, anyway. No. No. So, um, uh, and you know, and this, he's always closing the gap to Jesus' own time. You know, mm. again, when we wrote Temple of Revelation again, you know, it was 1997 that first came out. Um, and advanced this idea that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were trying to bring the goddess back into the Jewish religion, we kind of assumed that she had been um, airbrushed out a long, long way back. But the more we looked at it, the more the gap closed until it hit only a few generations before Jesus that it's disappears from the historical record mm. and of course beliefs don't disappear people no, it would have continued underground so you know it just became more and more plausible that in Samaria and probably in Egypt there were still people mm. that remembered that original religion mm. and wanted it back mm. well I think today we we are all striving for that too and I think the wonderful part of it is that that for a great many people, they are not so indoctrinated by a quote-unquote religion that they aren't comfortable with, with recognizing the fact that there is Mother Nature, that there is um, the element. I mean, I know a lot of people who, when they pray, go Father, Mother, God, so, mm-hmm. that, yeah. so, that, so that there is that, that element of it's coming back into our consciousnesses even more so than in 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 daily life. I mean, if you look at Washington, D.C., at the top of many of the uh, public buildings, there are, there are goddesses. I mean, it's, it's, she's never been absent. She's mm-hmm. just not been in the forefront. And I, I do believe that with many people today, there is that acknowledgement that there is a duality, even within in each individual, so that, so that, she's still making her presence known, although not as blatantly as once she did, but there is that element of understanding that, that that part of ourselves has to be whole and balanced in order for our society to be, I mean, politically speaking, forget it. Um, Yeah. But, but even, even as far as religions go, um, you know, they're going to be so far behind that it's in another thousand years that I, I don't even know that there will be major religions. But but it, it just seems to me that it's such a precious part of our history, both both you know, all religions, not just the two major ones, but all religions, the, the the Indian religions, too. I mean, you've got you've got Shiva, you've got, you know, all of those mm. Indian goddesses that, that have been a profound balance to a male aspect within their religion. It's there. And, and I think that we are free enough in our thinking, you know, if you choose to think that, that it would make sense that there would be a balance. And I, and I'm hopeful that your book will help wake up a lot of people to the fact that, that she's always been there. She always is. And she always will be just as all of the rest of it is. Yeah, I mean that's that's why we wrote the book, you know. Really, is to to make this point, um, as I said to, as I said earlier, to provide um, some facts. Mm. Yes. So it's, it's mm. to back up the mm. feeling and the intuition yes. that so many people have. 
Um, but yes, it is, you know, again, it was the fall and rise, and she is rising again. She is. Um, actually, the saddest part, though, to me, has always been um, of this whole story and our journey, if you like, is knowing that the last people to hear any of the good stuff, in any of the stuff about the goddess or the balance or anything, are the average worshippers, the average synagogue or churchgoers. They'll be the last people to hear anything about it because we're looking at traditions that are, are being jealously guarded and still will be. Yes, but, but the foundations aren't there. I think that's yes. what's so yes. great about your book. You have documented and you have given the kind of proof that anybody can check out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not yes. you two deciding to create your own new new uh new new cult. Um mm-hmm. it's it's that that this stuff has always been there and I mean my gosh, your your footnotes and your references <laughs> are yep. they, they'll chuck a horse. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I finally quit because they're, it's there. And as, as new documentation comes up, as, as they release it, it, it took them how long to release the Dead Sea Scrolls? Ten years, a decade or so? Mm-hmm. Oh, much, much longer with the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, um, you know, they discovered in 1945? I think... Or 47, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they weren't really publicly in translation until the 1990s. No, yeah. You know? Um, because of this, you know, people were scared what were, you know, <laughs> scared what they would find in them. Yes. I mean, you know, there's a whole thing of saying, well, you know, the, it was the Vatican that took control of uh, the academic side of that, and, and what could be uh, disseminate, disseminated even amongst professors and, and, and experts are very much controlled by the Vatican. Um, and you know, it's always been said that oh, it's because they knew what was in there and they wanted to stop it getting out. I think it's more that they didn't know what was in there, but were terrified about what it might be. Yeah. Because they know that there is such a. I was going to say their church is built in such a rocky foundation. Uh-huh. There's probably a joke in there. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, yeah. it was. Um, uh, you know, and that's why they they tried to they tried to control things like that. So the the the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, but in the end, you know, they can't. It it yeah. it gets out. You know. Now, one of the one of the cool things about being human is that we actually have free will. And most people don't recognize it, but yeah. and Jesus did say someplace in the Bible, I can't quote you chapter and verse, but he said, question everything. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so it's up to the individual to question. And you, you with this book have put an amazing amount of fact into it all. And yeah, you connected your dots and it makes good sense. But, but given the facts that you put out there, um, sometimes seeds of wisdom take a great deal of time to actually germinate and, and to flower. But, but that's the wonderful part about podcasts and things like this, that, that you, you put the information out there, and when people are ready to hear it, they'll listen. And when people are ready, I mean, books are, are, are kind of almost a thing of the past, but, but you've got the electronic books and stuff like that too. Your book is fabulous. And uh, I want to remind people that, that they can check out your website at www.picknettprince, that's picknettprince.com. And the book is available or will be available tomorrow on Amazon. 
So um, if you want a challenging read, if you want something that is going to perk your interest so that you you dig out whole bunches of other books. And Sacred Sites is a good site for people to look at, too. Uh, it's sacredsites.com. Yeah, a lot of um, old books and texts and everything are there, and they're free. It's free to read um, online, so you don't have to buy anything or join anything. But but do check out some of these references because they're phenomenal. Some of the texts that didn't make it into the Bible, unbelievable stuff. So that so that you know it's an exciting journey you can take into the source and the creation of what is here today, and the possibility of what can come beyond if everybody takes the time to educate themselves. I mean, it's it's, it's don't question you know question don't don't take somebody's word for something don't don't swallow dogma totally allow yourself to grow and understand and then internally create your own spiritual truths that you're going to live by because if you if you do it that way then you you can't be wrong you just can't be you you can change your mind of course but but you know you can't be wrong whatever you say is your truth is your truth for that moment and and as i have often said my philosophy will change tomorrow so check back in then but i want to i we're we're right right close to the end of the show i want to thank you guys so much this has been so much fun and so so much educational stuff and insightful stuff that you know, you know well, i Thank you, Barbara. It's been a great discussion. It's been fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm going to now sit back and read all your other books and have you back on all of those. <laughs> oh, please do. We'll be delighted. Absolutely. <laughs> is there, is I, there any? Is there any new? I know the book comes out tomorrow. Is there any other new information you want to get out there before they shut us down? Uh, well, no. That's they say the the the, the book is out. Uh, well, it will it will be out. Um, uh, to, and as an ebook as well, um, you can order it through. Uh, there are Amazon links through our website. Uh-huh. If, you do it, if you do it that way, we get a cut. Yeah, please do, please <laughs> do. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, and we're just going to be fascinated to see what the reaction is, um, see what response we get from people. Um, so yeah, we're just looking forward to what happens next. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, just, so, so out, of, out, out of curiosity, what are you now working on? Uh, well, actually, got, as usual, we've got a few ideas go, going on, and we just want to see which is the one that hits. Uh, you know, we're just kind of let, letting things gestate, and we're going to see which one, um, which one suddenly seems to be the right thing. We're also doing a lot more, trying to do a lot more work on television now. So, um, uh, you know, there's just plenty going on at the moment. But um, whatever we do next, we shall let you know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Please do. And, and thank you so much for, for, first of all, doing the intense amount of research that went into this book and then putting it in an absolute readable format so that, so that anybody, you, you don't have to have a historical or a biblical background to be able to understand where they're going and, and, and absolutely check out their footnotes. You know, you'll get frustrated because they're all there, but you know, check you, them out. You need access to a really good library for a lot more. Yes, don't take anybody's word for anything, including ours. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But you know, one of the things we do just very quickly was to kind of 
pull together information that's been around for a while, but it's been buried in um, academic publications and journals and books um, and, you know, sim symposiums and things um, that just haven't got out to a mainstream audience. And one of the things we want to do is pull that all together and put it in a place where people will get, get to it. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, we're right down to the very end here. I want to thank you and, and Mark, thank you for being the, uh, the bridge between countries here. And, um, and also uh, encourage everybody to check the book out. It is fabulous. Mark has a great show tomorrow and um, back on next Monday with Scott Walter and his, for his new book. But uh, do, do check out the website and check out uh, the YouTube channel. And, and if you are intrigued, hopefully you'll subscribe. Uh, be that, you know, it, it's, you know, I write down to the last 10 seconds. Thank you so much, everybody. I so enjoyed this. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Please check out this book. It's a great one. Good night now. Thank you.